Beloved, if you have a copy of God's living word, please open up to Ephesians chapter 1. That's going to be the primary text that we're in today. And as you turn there, I have a question for you. If I were to ask you, what is the church, how would you write out that answer? Perhaps some of you right now might be confronted with the reality that you really don't know. You know functions of it and parts of it, but you might not know. Some of you might begin recording your experience in the church, what it is that you've done and what churches you've been a part of. Uh, Some of you might point me specifically to verses to show me what the church is. And from there, we've built whole ideas from single passages. Uh, For some of you, you might be trying out the church for the very first time. And you don't really know, and there's no shame in that, by the way. Perhaps you haven't yet been discipled in what the church is. And you don't yet know what, what she is. Perhaps you're not even a Christian. And you're pondering the question right now, why is a pastor telling the church what she is? She, shouldn't she already know that? And for you, I would let you know that this word tells us what the church is. And we want to be faithful to sit under its authority. And we want it to shape our understanding, our categories, what for what she is. The Bible calls the church several different things, and perhaps a good way to start this series is just to refer just to a selection of titles that the Bible gives to the church. In Revelation 19, she's the bride of Christ. In Revelation 21, she is the wife of Christ. That means Christ has returned and taken for himself a wife. She is the church of the firstborn in Hebrews 12, the church of God in 1 Corinthians 1, the city of the living God in Hebrews 12, the flock of God in 1 Peter 5, God's building and field in 1 Corinthians 3, the household of God in Ephesians 2, the people of God in 1 Peter 2, the temple of God in Mount Zion in Hebrews chapter 12, beloved in 1 John, and in the book of Ephesians, she is the body of Christ which is where we get the title of our sermon series, The Body of Christ. This metaphor will guide us as we talk about the function and the reality of the church over the coming weeks. Now, all of these names, all of these titles that we've just read from the scriptures or pointed to from the scriptures should tell us what God thinks about his church. This is important to God. God has intentionally designed his church. He has forensically thought through his church from the very beginning of time. He has designed a structure for her. He has designed the truths for her. He has placed his son above her. And from here, we want to see what the scriptures say about that intricate, intentional, intended purpose for God's design for his beloved church. So I'm going to provide for us a main point to this series, and then I'll give you here in a few moments a main point to the sermon today. But the main point for this series that we are getting into is simply this. 
We want to consider God's intended purpose for the church and how it is to function as we desire God's purpose for the church to be our purpose as First Irving. That is our desire for this series. What God has intended for the church is, we want, is, is what we want to be our intended purpose for this local church known as First Baptist Church of Irving. Now, many of us have been in the local church for a long time. Many of us have rejoiced in the church, worshiped in the church, been saved by Christ and brought into the church. We've been a part of different churches. Some of you are new to the church. Uh, some of you are new to the idea of membership in the church. Uh, some of you are in the process of actually joining this church. We had a full membership class just this very morning. Because of the many backgrounds, the many experiences, the many cultures now that make up First Irving, we think it's important as the overseers of this church to come and to sit under what God's word says about the church, especially for a time such as this, with so many variations of experiences and backgrounds. We want the word of God to shape all of us together. This is our desire, and our hope is that you're refreshed as a body, that you are refreshed by what God's word says. Our hope is that you are convicted by what God's word says, leading to greater repentance, greater faith, a greater understanding of what the church is. Uh, our hope is that you are reminded of the things perhaps you once knew but had forgotten, things that it's good to hold on to, good, uh, things that are good to be reminded of, things that it's good for uh, a refreshing, a replenishing, an idea that was once formed in your mind perhaps more maturely. And then perhaps our hope is for us to be informed in areas that we are not yet informed by what the church is and what God's intended purpose for her is. Now, if the book of Romans was given to the church and it reveals the, the great doctrine of salvation, perhaps in the most grand way from any other book in the scriptures, re revealing God's redemptive plan both for the church and for Israel, uh, the book of Ephesians is an abbreviated version of the book of Romans, yet it has a more extensive understanding or a, a more extensive developed understanding of what the church is and what the purpose of the church is. And because of that, we found it necessary to begin our series in the book of Ephesians. At the end of the first chapter, we're going to be looking at two verses today, verses 22 and 23. Because that's where Paul mentions the church, the body of Christ, for the first time. Now, it may seem that it's taken Paul quite a, a bit of time to get to this point in his letter to the Ephesians to actually mention the church, but I would submit to you that it's the great crescendo of all the theology that he has just laid out. Getting to verse 22, Paul has laid out his praises to God as he has described the scope of Christ's work. Now, the scope of Christ's work mentioned in the book of Ephesians is very similar to the scope of Christ's work that we covered a few months ago in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. But before he mentions the church, he reminds the church of this glorious work of Christ. 
So before we get into Ephesians 1, I want to kind of frame the foundation of the book of Ephesians in this way. Before the foundation of the world was laid, God made a plan to glorify himself. He made a people that he would redeem through his glorious son. This is the church. And through it, the church would reveal the manifold wisdom of God to all of creation. What a glorious description that Ephesians gives us of the church. So in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, verses 3 through 4, we see that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in him before matter existed. Verses 5 and 6, we see that he, in love, adopted us as sons through Christ according to his will and the praise of his glorious grace. And this occurred in the blessed one who is the beloved, who is Jesus. The great affection of the father is the son. I don't want us to forget that. Verses 7 and 9, he lavished upon us the richnesses of his grace, which he redeemed us and forgave us of our, trans, of our trespasses against him. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, the purpose that he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, he tells us that this has been the plan from uh, all time, that all things together would be submitted and united in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. We have obtained an inheritance, verse 11, because we have heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and we have believed in Christ, and we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is, this is fascinating. Then the Spirit is our guarantee, verse 14, our inheritance until we require or acquire possession of it all. Paul then tells the reader, in verses 15 through 19, how he's praying for the church, that the God of Father would give the church a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and enlighten the church's heart through Christ, and set their minds on the hope of Christ, which is what he has called them to. In verses 20 and 21, we see that hope and power are found solely in Christ and we are then accomplished in Christ. And this is true when Christ raised from the dead and sits now at the right hand of the Father where he reigns and rules far above all else, far above everything else in creation. And this is true in this age and the age to come. This is true about our Christ. So we get to our passage today, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. And he gave as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. The head of the body is the church, who is the head over all. All things, and he was gifted to the church. The main point or summary of the sermon today is this because Christ is the head of the church, we, the church, respond as his body, filled and satisfied in him, or submitted and satisfied in him. Could be another way to say it. And we're going to talk about those two responses today. Well, look with me in verse 22. And he gave all things under his feet. Or, and he, excuse me, and he put all things under his feet. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. This is where we get our first point today. Church, we want to submit to Christ 
who is the head of the church. We want to submit to Christ, who is the head of the church. First, we see from verse 22, this very similar idea that was brought forward in Colossians, that Christ is the head over all creation, and he's the head over the church. You guys remember this idea from Colossians 1. We preached over it not too long ago. Well, Paul, in verse 22, uh, connects this idea that all things are put under his feet to Psalm 8. And, and here's what Psalm 8 says. It's, it's reminding us of the creation narrative. And I'll, I'll read it over you for the sake of time. What is man, verse 4, that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6 is important. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put him all, you have put all things under his feet, things like sheep and oxen, oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea are under the creation and are under the dominion of man. Paul reminds us from Psalm 8 that the original intent of God in his creation was for man to rule over creation itself to have dominion over the sheep and the oxen and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. This is what Adam was placed under. We see this in Genesis chapter 2. We're charged with ruling. But here, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is giving a new dimension to the governing of all creation because he suggests that all things now are put under Christ, under Christ's feet so what was intended for Adam to rule ultimately did not happen. Why? Because Adam was to rule the beasts of the field, but ultimately Adam submitted to the greatest beast of the field, who was the serpent. And so we needed a new Adam, a second Adam, a better Adam to come and to have all things put under his feet. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. And this is the original intention for man that God has. He intended man to rule, but ultimately he's showing that all things were to submit under Christ's rule and authority. And that's why we can see in verse 10 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, the plan from all along was to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. We need to see what this is so that we can understand what Paul is saying forthcoming. If you have your Bible, circle that little word gave right there in the middle of verse 22. And he gave him, Christ, as the head over all things to the church. So the very center of God's glory, the very affection of the Father who is the Son, is given to the church. So the church here is that Greek word ekklesia. It means to assemble. It means to gather. But he gave Christ to the church. So let that sink in for just a minute. The glorious plan from all creation, who is the Son, was given to the church. In Christ, who died on the cross, those who have received Christ by faith, by grace, through faith, have their sins and trespasses forgiven. That's what we just said in verse 7. Uh, these same people, us, the church, those who have believed, are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And God has given to his church 
his beloved son. I remember when I was coming out of college, I had grown up in the church and was attending a church not too far from here, actually, that was preaching the gospel very faithfully. Uh, a week after week, just pouring and lavishing the treasures of Christ upon the congregation. And it hit me about week 37, yes, I'm a slow learner, just as the preacher was tired of say, saying it, I was first and finally hearing it, but the very center of the purpose of all of creation is Christ. To that point, I had thought it was me. Honestly, I had thought it was me, but the center of all of it, because verse 6 in Ephesians chapter 1 says, Christ is the beloved of the Father. All of this is found through him and in him. And it just began to change my mind. And the one that is the, the beloved of the Father is then given to the church. Uh, we see in John 3, 16, uh, it says in the original uh, Greek that he, get, that he loved the world in this way. That he gave his only begotten son. That's the object of that text in John 3, 16. The only begotten from the Father. The way the world is saved is through the beloved son. And that is so important. Christ has been given to the church. The church has not been given to Christ. Now, in one sense, this might make us feel smaller and less significant, but if we really let it sit on us and we think about God's cosmic plan, we see God's love that has been thrown out, lavished on his people when we realize that he loves the Son. And that is the plan for all of eternity, to then give his Son to a people. Oh, that is... That is fun to think about. Now, look with me closely in verse 22. God did not just give Christ generally to us, but he gave his son to the church. This is important because it's not as if God has given Christ to us just to enjoy individually, though we can enjoy him individually, but he has given Christ to the church plurally for us to enjoy together. It's as if Paul has been talking about all this glorious theology and the whole text in Ephesians 1 has been pregnant and then it gives, gives birth forth in the idea that then this beautiful cosmic king is given to the church. I, I think it's good for us to just sit on the fact that God loves the church so much that he gave his only begotten son. Notice that Paul says that he was not only given to the church, verse 22, but he is the head of the church, which is his body. Yes, Christ is the head over all things, as the writer says, but he is specifically the head for the church. And the church is the only thing that is considered his body. Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about that though Christ is head over all things, the only part of the church that is, or the only part of creation that is his body is the church. The only thing connected to the head is the body. The kingdoms of the earth are not his body. Creation is not his body. The angels are not his body. The church is his body. And... The only head to the body is Christ. Let us think about that. 
Government is not our ultimate head. Whatever country you hail from in this room is ultimately not your head. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys are not your head. Even if they were winning Super Bowls, they are a lousy head, right? Everything in creation makes a lousy head except for one who is Christ, who has one body, that is the church. So Paul is giving the church in Ephesus a sense of its true identity, its true identity, its real purpose in the role in the world. This is the role that the church plays in the world is to be the very body of the head who is over it all. Think about that in a cosmic sense, but also in a very practical sense here momentarily. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 tells us that you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not have mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the church. Those who have received Christ Jesus the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and have entered into his body. There's a lot of people that gather. Some gather in the name of Christ, but don't actually submit to his lordship. Others gather uh, in, in very odd and, 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 and crazy ways. There's, there's an atheistic movement going on right now. Did you guys know this? Of megachurches popping up that are atheist. These are people that grew up in the church. And don't necessarily think all of the church is bad. They just don't want to talk about God. And so one of the leaders in California says this, there was so much about the church that I loved. But it's a shame because at the heart of it, it's something I don't believe in. If you think about the church, there is very little that's bad. We get to sing awesome songs, hear interesting talks, think about improving ourselves and helping others, and doing it, and doing that in a community with wonderful relationships, what part of that is not good? That's what this person said. He just described a body with no head. And a body without a head is not living. Those who gather, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, in the name of Christ are living, connected to the head, apart of his body. Colossians 2.19, you guys remember this? We are to hold fast to the head. That is the responsibility of the body. Those who do not hold fast to the head are in danger from, from uh, whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So the body is to submit, is to consider is to be connected to the very head of its existence, who is Christ over all things. Now, I want to give a very quick um, distinction here that will help guide us throughout this whole series as we drop in and, and expound certain passages in God's word. There is a difference between the universal church and a local church. Now, they're the church, but what what are those distinctions? I think that's really important for us to consider as we move forward. So in Ephesians 1, 
this wonderful theology that Paul is giving forward, he's talking about the universal church. Christ has been given to all who have received him. He's been given to the church. The universal church is everyone who has trusted in Christ, turned from their sin, recognized their sub- the need for substitutionary death at the hands of, of Christ, who bore our wrath, the wrath of God that was poured out on him. Uh, we're, we're, the universal church are those who have repented of their sin and trying to walk by faith and not by sight. And they're saved by the grace of Christ through faith. And this church is made up of every tribe, nation, and tongue and is not limited to one country. It's not limited to one part of the world. But it is actually the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham back in Genesis 12. You're going to be the father of many nations. And so it also includes all those who are not with us, those who are not yet born, and the church that exists now. And uh, some scholars believe this is called the, individ- uh, the uh, invisible church or the eschatological church or the historical church. The eschatological church, excuse me, is this. That everybody who has received Christ by faith is ultimately going to end up dwelling with Christ forever. So all saints for all time. That's the universal church. And I think that's what Paul has in view here. He's just laying out this big theology for the church history to receive and be a part of. But the way that the universal church manifests itself now is in local churches local assemblies, and we see this actually develop throughout the book of Acts and in the New Testament. We see that Acts 2, 3,000 people are gathered together, but they didn't even have deacons yet. They didn't have pastors yet. They didn't know what they were supposed to do yet. But by the time we get to Paul's third missionary journey, he's writing letters about how the church, the local church, is formed and structured and what it looks like for it to display the wisdom of God in its local community. We actually see in this book, the book of Ephesians, uh, what this looks like. The first three chapters are talking about the universal church. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed in the church. That's in Ephesians chapter 3. And it's made up of one body and one spirit and one Lord and one faith throughout all of history. That's the beginning of chapter 4. But then we get into verse uh, 11 of chapter 4, and we see that Christ, who is the head of the church, has actually given gifts to the church. And the gifts that he has given to the church are the apostles, that means the apostles' teachings, the prophets, the evangelists, those who have gone out and taken the gospel to the nations. He's also given pastors and teachers who explain and expound God's word. Why? Verse 12 tells us, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And this happens in local expressions. This is why we assemble and gather together every single week. We talk about these things. So my question is, we wrap up this little section. What does submitting to Christ look like as the head of the church? Do we think so often about the global church or just the church in general that we often don't think what it looks like to submit to Christ in the way that he has designed his church to look? 
the way that he has structured her and cared for her and gives promises to her. That's one thing I want us to think through as we carry on in this series. The last thing I want us to see, and it's a little bit quicker than the first, is that not only has Christ been given to the church as its head, but he is also the very center of the church. See with me the last part of verse 23. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, the second response, since Christ is the head of the body, is this. We want to remain centered as the church on Christ, who is the fullness of the church. So not only do we want to submit to the fact that Jesus is Lord of the church, but we also want to be reminded of the idea that he fills the church that is his body. Therefore, we want that to be our center, our aim, the reason why we gather. So Christ is the head of the church, and he's also intended to be her fullness. Verse 23, the body is the fullness of him who fills all things. The church is Christ's fullness, but he is the one who fills all things. Have you ever thought about that? That we were intended to be his fullness, but we can't fulfill unless he fills us first. Now, there's some debate about that word fill, pleromo in the Greek, which can be passive and active in its meaning. If it's active, it means the church fills Christ. If it's active, it means the church fills Christ. But if it's passive, it reassures that Christ fills us. And we think the most faithful interpretation of that that, that phrase is to be taken as passive, meaning it is Christ who fills the church and not the church who fills Christ. There's a, there's a huge difference there because that would suggest that Christ is lacking in something. If you remember back in Colossians 1, uh, Paul says that his suffering is filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflic- affliction for the sake of the body. But remember we talked about how it's Christ and his filling of Paul which actually fills the suffering that he is enduring. So Christ has to be the one that fills all and all. He has to be the great affection, the great reason why we meet. So he fills all of creation as sovereign over her, but he's also specifically filling the church with things he's not filling creation with. He only fills the body in specific ways, why he fills creation with general ways. We call this in theology common grace. Everybody gets food in the world, and most people get food in the world. Most people have shelter. We see the common graces of God, but it's only the church that receives the Spirit of God, as seen in Ephesians. Uh, The gifts of God, the, the grace of God, which means that only the church is truly the fullness as the church receives the extra things that God gives. So the church is separate. The church is different than anything else in all of creation. I love what theologian Francis Folks says uh, in regard to this phrase. He kind of paraphrases it himself. He says, it's, it's God's purpose for the church to be the full expression of Jesus Christ, who himself fills everything there is. So the church is to do everything submitted to the lordship of Christ 
with Christ as the center of the aim for it because we are to do the movement that the head has done. We are to be attached to the head itself. So if the head does one thing, the body does something different. If they're separated, uh, they can't operate. But because we're united with Christ, we can. And this is the intention that God has. This means that the church is fully reliant upon Christ for everything that we do. He is, yes, he is the center of our salvation. There is no name under which man can be saved except for the name of Christ. But he is also the very center and purpose of our discipleship, the very motivation behind our love, the very essence of our truth, the very center of our worship, the very means by which we steward the resources in the congregation and individually. He is the reason we sacrifice for one another. He is everything. So we belong to the head because we are the body. And the body then submits to Christ in everything. And everything we do, since he's the fullness thereof, is to be done with the idea that Christ is all-satisfying, all-knowing, all-good, all-loving. And so with that understanding, as the church, we can operate with the intended purpose that God has designed. And we can do this not in the flesh, by the way, but because he has given us the spirit, that promised inheritance until we receive our full blessing in Christ. When Christ, who is over all things, will actually and physically come unite himself with the church. This will happen. We are, we are already not yet. You've heard that expression before. This is true for us, but it will one day be fully true when Christ comes. So in closing today, I have a few applications for us, a few things for us to consider before we take the Lord's Supper. First, think about this individually. How are you growing in your satisfaction of Christ's lordship? If Christ is head over all things, and then specifically he's head of the church, which he has allowed you to be a part of, how are you growing in your joy and your desire to submit to his lordship? Sometimes we know the facts about Jesus, uh, but we're oftentimes unwilling to submit to his authority, to his lordship. Look, sometimes, I've even seen this in my own life, sometimes I'm, I'm longing for faith. I want more faith to, to, to believe something, to trust something. But what's blocking me is an actual submission. Submission is where we actually get to work out our faith. Submission to who he is and who he has revealed himself to be is where we get to walk out our faith. He is our provision. He is our satisfaction. The things that he's promised us are true. Let's submit to him and believe what it is that he has said in his word about himself and about his church. Secondly, and this is corporately, and this is a question for us to consider, is Christ the center of everything we do as First Irving? Is Christ the very center of everything we do as First Irving? That's a question that's rattling around in your pastor's heads, elders, the, the staff, as we organize and administrate ministry. 
Everything must be tied back to the head. And if it's not, then it's separate. The body then is separate from the head. And so it's a good, it's a good question to ask ourselves, a good indication of where we are. If we operate apart from the head, then we are separate from the head. And, and brothers and sisters, there's warnings for us because churches in today's time have done this. They have decided that the head is not enough for them. Oh, that we would be a church that is faithful and doesn't fall away. Uh, number three, let's commit to the church. Let's commit to the church. If the church is important to God, then it must be important to us. I want to encourage you throughout this series to be here week in and week out if you're able to. I recognize that illnesses come up. I recognize that travel comes up. But to sit and to be shaped by the word of God as we think through what the church is and how God has specifically, intentionally designed her. Let's commit to the local church. That doesn't mean just coming occasionally. That means thinking, if this is God's priority for all of creation, is it my priority? Is it my priority? Uh, there's no other priority, young people, to invest your lives in than this. This right here, the church of the living, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living and resurrected King. Let's commit to the church. Number four, Christ is the head of this church. Christ is the head of this church. He's the head of the cosmic church. He's the head of every local. He's the head of this church. I am not the head of this church. The pastors and the elders of this church are not the head of this church, though we have responsibilities. Congregation, you are not the head of this church. But remember that Christ is the head of this church. And if Christ is the head of this church, do we think it's important to then listen to what it is he says about his church? The one who is the head has the authority then to say what is true about what he wants, right? Let's think about that. Number, uh, number five, remember, just because we look ordinary, that's not a slight to anyone, does not mean that we aren't extraordinary. Just because we look ordinary does not mean that we aren't extraordinary. You can look to the brother and sister to your right and to your left. You can think about your struggles. You can think about your emotions, your feelings, and all of these things. My encouragement to you is to not think that your emotions are more true than the truth we just read from Ephesians 1. That you have been formed as the church before the foundation of the world. Fight to remember that truth in your daily life. Fight to consider yourself extraordinary, not because of anything that we have done because we have been formed and fashioned in Christ who accomplished it all for us. That means we got to walk by faith and not by sight, right? Because when we look over, it looks awfully ordinary. When you look at this little pastor up here, you're going, he's pretty ordinary. And that is so true. But what is fascinating is that our king is extraordinary. And that God the Father has made for his Son, the beloved, a bride, a body that he's uniting. 
that should impact the way that we think about the church, that should have a direct impact about the way we think about the church, the categories that we think in. Number six, uh, we're going to view outside sources rightly. I think oftentimes we think about all the, all the things out there, all the, all the glorious uh, uh, resources that are out there, and those are so good. And we're going to talk about that throughout the series, the, the benefits of those things and all of that. But we're also going to talk about how God in his extraordinary plan made local churches for us to learn how to love one another, submit to one another, care for one another. And so we want to rightly position those resources. And then lastly, if you are not a Christian here, I, I don't want to mince words. Our hope is that you would receive by faith the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the one who died and formed a people for his own possession. Uh, if you want to talk about this, if you want to consider this, if you want to learn more about this Jesus who is over all things, you might have never even thought about that concept. Our desire is to talk to you about that and to warn you of the dangers of neglecting that. Because this word, again, this, I'm not the authority, this word is the authority, this word says that the only living body is attached to the living head. And he's been given to the church. And so receiving him by faith is entrance into that church. Now we're going to cover over the next few weeks some categories. What are all the, uh, just the, the, the function of the church? What are the, the function of the body of Christ? Today we've talked about the head of the body, who is Jesus we're going to talk about the members of the body. We're going to talk about the servants of the body. We're going to talk about the leaders of the body. We're going to talk about how to care for the body, how the body is meant to grow. We're going to talk about the mission of the body. We're going to talk about all of these things in the coming weeks. Please make it a priority to be here. Please consider what God's word says, even if it is new to you. That would be the appeal. Uh, guys, sitting in the scriptures this week, I'm learning new things. And I pray at 50 or 60, I'm doing the very same thing. I pray that for all of our congregation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your living word. God, thank you for your son who is the head of the body. Father, thank you for the body that you have allowed us to be a part of it. Oh, Lord, we recognize that that's not our work. That's Christ's work. So, Father, we don't pray in our name, we pray in his name. We don't gather in our name, we gather in his name. The name above all names. In this we pray, amen.